One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity, which provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives. Why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most? In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals about how they achieved success in the face of adversity. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. In this episode, we welcome the iconic and hugely influential musician, Gary Newman. Gary is known to many as one of the founding fathers of synth pop. He has sold over 10 million records and maintains a cult following among his fans who are known as the Numanoids. He shot to fame as the lead member of the pioneering new wave group Tubeway Army with hits such as Our Friends Electric on the album Replicas, one of three consecutive chart-topping albums. His first solo album, The Pleasure Principle, released in 1979, featured the hit Cars, his most famous song. He credits a lot of the success he's had to his loving, supportive parents who always encouraged their quirky, imaginative son. But despite his support system at home, Gary's success came with its challenges. I've often likened it to, to um, grabbing onto the side of a train. You know, you you stand on the, on the platform waiting for success to come along. You can hop onto the carriage and enjoy it, this lovely journey that you're going to go on. It wasn't like that at all. It was like an express train came through and you just put out your hand and grabbed it and you're suddenly whisked away at this lightning speed and you're hanging on just for as long as you possibly can and you're looking in and you're seeing this other world, but you're not really a part of it. He's astonishingly expressive, isn't he, about the effects of fame. What did you think about him when you met him? What's so interesting is that he talks about how he has Asperger's, which was undiagnosed at school, uh, and he had a really difficult time with his teachers because they didn't understand that his brain worked in a different way. He just didn't follow the same logic as everyone else. But actually, when we met him, he seemed really kind of relaxed and sociable and chatty. He didn't seem socially awkward at all. He's very funny, isn't he? And what I really liked about him was that sense that he was almost using his Asperger's as a superpower. And he says that, that that he realises he's quite quirky and different and alternative. And he knows that he has got to ask for help occasionally. And he has got an incredibly sympathetic wife who is very understanding. But at the same time, I think it has really helped his music. He's very good at focusing. He used to focus very hard on planes. He loved watching planes land. He loved learning how to fly a plane. He wanted to know everything about them when he was little. And that transferred to his music, I think. You know, people talk about being obsessive as if it's a bad thing, but it's not. It's a really good thing. It drives you, doesn't it? You have to know everything you possibly can about this thing that you're doing that will kill you if you don't know everything you can. Be super careful. Your checks have to be meticulous. You don't take anything for granted. Will you apply that level of obsession to other things? 
as well. And it, it's just really, really useful. What's extraordinary as well is the way that he started off with this bang and he was just unbelievably successful very young. And then it all goes wrong and he can't really cope with that fame. But he comes back again so much wiser and he knows how to do it. He meets one of his greatest fans who becomes his wife, who's phenomenally supportive to him and helps him and is incredibly supportive as well with his music. The other thing that I found really interesting is that he was famous for this very groundbreaking electronic music, but he's really sceptical about the rise of AI in creativity and the arts and music. And he thinks actually it's made him want to go back to being more human. And he'd actually just done an acoustic tour, which was sort of almost a more human version of the music that he'd always played at the height of his fame. I'm quite sure that AI will be able to make the most amazing music. And I think for a while, people would just think that's a good thing. But what it doesn't have is soul. It, it, it doesn't have the, the experience of the human, that, that what they went through to make that, to see the world that way, to come up with that art. You know, there's an, a, there's an experience that you're sharing in when you have something that's created by a human, and that's mm. gone. So it might look beautiful, but it's empty. Gary shared with us how close he is with his wife and daughters as he talked to us about some of his many tattoos. Well, this this one... It's Farsi, so it goes backwards. This is my children's names. Okay. They're all they all mention God, and I'm not religious, which is bizarre. Interesting. But they're all lyrics from songs. This says, um, "If God calls your name, I would die for you." This one, that's Gemma's name, her wife, and that says, "Until God takes me away." That's on a wedding ring, inscribed on a wedding ring. Oh, I can't remember this. I think this, also, <laughs> this is. Um, I would walk out of heaven just to be with you. And this one says, I'd sold, sold my soul to the devil if you asked me to. Interesting. So we wanted to talk to you about your acoustic music. So you've gone from electric to acoustic. Why is that? Oh, very briefly. It's not a long-term thing. Okay. Well, for years and years and years, I, I've never thought that my stuff would work acoustically at all. I've always felt that it it only survives at all because it's produced and there's layers and, and my interest in music isn't actually m music in, in a way it's my interest in in making music is noise sounds okay. I'm fascinated by sounds I, I can't play I'm, I'm a very very poor I'm average at best I'm probably not a guitar player and I'm even worse as a keyboard player I still don't know the names of chords you know, if you said to me play a G I know the note but I don't know the chord no idea. The way I write is in layers of, of melody upon melody upon melody that work and connect and ultimately build into this, this thing because mm. I'm not a musician. Mm. And the reason I got into electronic music, I think, way back when, is because it was the first thing I'd found that enabled me to explore what I was interested in, which was noise and sound, rather than technique. Okay. You know, I, I didn't want to learn the scales. I had no interest in any of that. I didn't like the music. When, when people were very, very musical, I sort of noticed, even as a, a young person, that, that their songwriting tended to be just a never-ending way of, of, of showing off how good they were yeah. as a player. <laughs> you know, endless solos, endless complicated chords and strange arrangements. You just go, oh, my God, can you just write a tune? Yeah. Just a tune, you know? And that's what I wanted. I, I wanted really loads of weird noises, and some tunes. Synthesizers gave me that. So I never, when I've never practiced, I've, I've never sat down with the guitar, I thought I'm going to learn how to do that better. 
ever once. I'm 65 now. I've been up my whole life. Never ever once have I felt the need to practice. And that's not because I'm lazy. Yeah. (laughs) A little bit maybe. But I, I just don't have any interest in that type of skill. And I... I genuinely feel that the more, the better you get as a musician, the more that becomes the thing you want to, mm. you want to show off. Mm. I've always wanted to to find sounds and and noises that people have never heard before. You know, I, I, I you listen to someone that does those amazing guitar solos, you know, and you go, oh wow, that's really really clever. Could never do that, but nor would I ever want to, because mm. to me, if you can just press one note down, and it's an amazing sound comes out that frightens you or you know chills you or disturbs you into or whatever mm. and then you just press it a little bit harder and it, and it changes and, it, and this sound evolves into something else you know that's one finger on one key <laughs> mm-hmm. can be way more interesting than a thousand notes a second guitar solo yeah and constantly changing and constantly different so that's that's my interest in it when covid happened and we couldn't tour for a while Started to worry about money. I started to see lots of other people picking up an acoustic guitar mm. and doing little things and putting it online, and and it became you know quite the thing. And then there was talk about doing a driving tour. I thought, oh, that that would save mm. me, you know. So I said yes to that, and then that got cancelled, and you know the money became an even bigger issue because most of my income comes from touring, yeah. not from records. Mm. Um, so without touring, I've I've got like an eighty percent drop in income. It's Serious, you know, and it happens very, very quickly. And so, I, what, you know, what, what can I do about this? I know, I know. We'll, we'll go to England, we do our isolation, we'll meet up with the band, and we just try to do this, some of these acoustic things that these other people are doing. Not to tour, it was to make little videos where I would talk, and I, I don't ever talk and I play live, mm. I just do the songs, say thank you, and, and go home. So I thought it would be quite different, you know, doing these things acoustically. We can spend a lot of time finding the ones that work so it sounds all right. And I was really, really doubtful that we'd get many because because of the feelings I had mm. about it before. And then I'd do a little talk, explain what the song's about, you know, hopefully add some funny little anecdotes that they might not know, make these little video clips and then put them on the store and sell them. You know, it'd be a way of generating some sort of money. That was one of the ideas I had. And are they just old tracks with an acoustic sound or are they new songs? How, how did you do both, them? Actually. It was both, And, and it, it was... It was because of that, because some of the newer stuff, which is very, very big and, and dense. And was that the most exciting part for you, the new stuff? Well, it was exciting when it started to work. Mm. Yeah, up until then, it was just nerve-wracking and, and I was expecting to be embarrassed. And I, I was even embarrassed in front of the band, playing these songs and singing them, you know, without all the, the noise and everything going on around me, because I don't think of myself as a singer at all. It was just a really good experience. You, you know, the, the song sounded much, much better than I thought they would. When you took everything away and you had the most basic one guitar, acoustic guitar, one piano with no effects on it, just one piano, me and somebody, the the drums were a man sitting on a box, tap, not, not a but it's, it's, it's meant for percussion, but you just sit on this box and you tap it in different ways and it makes different percussive noises and like a tambourine that, mm-hmm. and that was it. And so we worked out these songs and started to put them together and I was really happy. I, I was amazed, actually, that they sounded like proper little songs. That's where the the seed, if you like, of the idea of doing this tour started. You know, it opened my eyes to the fact that you actually can play these songs without all the the noise, and they do stand up. You know, they are 
proper songs. Because it's almost a reverse of Bob Dylan when he went from acoustic to electric, and that was very controversial, <laughs> and the fans felt it was a betrayal almost. Did yeah. you, how have the fans reacted? It's been amazing, mm. actually. It was sold out. I mean, it's only a little tour, and it's not, you know, mm-hmm. fairly modest places because we weren't sure what's going to happen. But it sold out straight away. For the last week we've been rehearsing, the well, last two weeks we've been rehearsing, but for the last week of it, we, we have fans come in. Um, small numbers of fans come in and watch the rehearsals, um, which I've, I've done for years, because it's nice to give them, uh, allow them to see a side of something they wouldn't normally see. You know, see us actually trying to get, having problems and trying to work them out and how you solve the things that come along, the problems that come along. Mostly they like it, which, really is, which is useful. You know, and do you think there's a sense now that, because they're all sort of in the age of AI and robots and it's all so tech that actually there's something rather brilliant about coming back and being much more human and and the, the, you're, the way you're doing it in reverse. It is, actually, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Actually, no one can replicate you, can they? No, I hadn't thought of that, but that is a really good point. Yeah, it is, it is nice. I'm really not into this AI thing in in music. I'm sure it's going to be amazing in in lots and lots of areas and will really make a positive difference to life. But I think as far as the creative arts are concerned, I I think it's a a terrible thing. Terrible thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite sure that AI will be able to make the most amazing music, write the most amazing novels. Whatever it does, it will be fantastic at it, I'm sure. And I think for a while, people would just think that's a good thing. But what it doesn't have is soul. It, mm. it doesn't have the, the experience of the human, that, that what they went through to make that, to see the world that way, to come up with that art. You know, there's an, a, there's an experience that you're sharing in when you have something that's created by a human, and that's mm. gone. So it might look beautiful, but it's empty. Mm. So we want to go back to your childhood to work out what experiences have made you and your music. And you were born, Gary Webb, actually, in 1958 under the Heathrow flight path in Hammersmith. What are your earliest memories of your home and your family life? I I don't remember Hammersmith. I think we we were gone from there before I would remember anything. So my first memories are, I, I always say four. I think I'm guessing, but it's when I was, you know, a little toddler. My very, very first memory, which is more of a photograph now than anything, about the way I remember it, my dad used to work for a paint spraying company and they would let him use his van, their van, rather. And we'd gone out somewhere near, near Heathrow and the van had broken down and it was foggy. And I remember sitting on, the engine used to be in the middle in between the two seats of my dad and my mum. I remember sitting on the engine because it was warm and with my mum, feeling very frightened and watching my dad with a can disappear into the fog and just vanishing. I remember being really frightened mm. and, and leaning into my mum. And So that's my, the very first memory I've got of being younger. But it it all revolves around family. Mm. And, and you were an only child, weren't you, until you were seven and then yeah. your cousin moved. And why did that happen? Um, my, my dad's brother committed suicide uh, and the, the mum, and got rid of all the children straight away. And then she got some of them back. But John, who, who we had, we, we my mum kept. So we got him when I was seven, I think, seven or eight. And he was just a few months. So he was, yeah, he was my cousin and he became, he was called Donovan. In fact, he's just made an album. He calls himself Donovan Silver. He's just made his first <laughs> album. He's, he's so you're all singers and performers. Uh, well, John was a pilot. He was an airline pilot for for years and years and years. Then he retired early, 
because he had this dream of making his own album and doing it. I mean, he dabbled a little bit when he was younger. I had my own record label and he had a, little, he had a record deal and did a single, I think. But never he went anywhere. He he went into aviation as his, as his life, you know. But um, no, so yeah, he's, he's back to being Donovan again. <laughs> but no, but he, he we, my mum and dad called him John. So then I had a brother. So I'm, I'm an only child as far as sort of by birth, but I, I've always had a brother since I was seven. And what was your relationship with your parents like? Did that did the family dynamic change when John arrived? No, 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 not that I was aware. Mm. Yeah, I, I loved him. I never felt jealous. I loved him from mm. the moment he arrived. Mm. But that's, I imagine that's down to the, that's to the credit of my parents who it didn't suddenly make me feel less special. Mm. My mum my and dad, from the moment I was born to, up to today, you know, have always made me feel as if I'm the most important mm. thing in the world. So the and biggest fans. I can do anything I want. And yeah. That's and great. Well, my mum died a few years ago, but you know, up until she died, then she, she was the same. So both of us, me and my brother, have come from this incredibly close and loving and supportive family. You know, I, we'll probably talk about it in a bit, but you now I had trouble at school and, and that support never wavered, even when I let them down. And many, many times I let them down, never wavered. So you, you it's what I've always tried to do with my children. You, you know, they are the most important thing. And I was brought up to feel like that. And there's a, a confidence comes from that. Mm. I, for me anyway, I, it, it made me very confident. It made me feel I could do anything and ambitious. And I always had this cushion to fall back on, you know, the arm around your shoulder and, you know, something to cry on and, mm. and all that. To, and then... My dad was brilliant at coming up to me, you know, after I'd gone to bed and giving me little chats and little talks and be very inspiring, you know, just simple things, but make you the next day get up and try harder and go at it again, you know. I tried to, <laughs> I tried to do that with my my eldest one, and I thought I was doing a really really good job <laughs> until a few years ago. She she said, "Not one of none of your boring lectures." <laughs> Oh, I shattered me. But sure, I got really upset. Inspirational talks. Yeah. I thought I was being my dad. You know, and, and that she was going to look back on this when she was older. And then all these lovely moments <laughs> where it was just me and her and we're talking and I'm, I'm inspiring her and telling little stories about me. No, <laughs> boring lectures. She may yet, though. She might change your mind. <laughs> I hope so. You say you had difficulties. It bothered me. I, I, I just stopped. I don't even do it anymore. <laughs> but you say you had difficulties at school. You were actually... Um, you know, your your head teacher said that you were the most disruptive pupil they'd ever had. How do you think that went wrong? Because most children, when they arrive at school, don't want to be the most difficult. No, um, you, you know, I, I I my past eleven plus, so I got to grammar school, mm. so I was seen as quite quite bright. And my mum and dad, they never said this, but you know, I, I assume that from a parent point of view, you think my well, job done. You know, grammar school education, good job money you know that's all that's going to be good so um I, I went there with no intention of being troublesome nothing like that i um but i think maybe that's where the asperger's really started to to show itself so i had lots of behavioral problems very very um you, you, if, if somebody says something that isn't accurate you you have to say that, that that's not right you know and so I was constantly arguing with teachers, you know, and they would say stupid things. I, I was late for class one day, and they were, the the kids were lining up at the front of the class to to go to assembly, and I I, I was a little bit late, so but I was still on still on time. 
got into class and the teacher said to me, line up, a bit angrily. And so I thought, so, but I had to get my bag to my chair. So, so I threw it. I didn't mean anything by that, but I thought, well, I threw the bag over there and, and lined up. Because in my head, that made the most sense. That was the quickest way of getting to the line. Yeah. No, no intent to be you know, disrespectful or, or awkward or anything like that. So I threw my bag. I know now that that would be seen differently. You know, that might be seen as, a, as an arrogant sort of thing, cocky thing to do. But it wasn't. I didn't mean it that way. Mm -hmm. That was mm -hmm. the way my brain said, quickest way to do this is to, is to do that. Yeah. Through that, he starts at me. Now I'm thinking, what's your problem? I'm doing the best I can to do what you just told me to do. So now I'm going at him. Yeah. And that started to happen all the time all the time about everything. Would you do that to your furniture at home? Obviously not, because it's not a wooden chair. You know, mm. we have nice furniture at home and now I wouldn't drop my bag so on So your it. very logical brain very. didn't compute with what they were no, saying. Yeah. No, it's fact. Yeah. Of course not, yeah. because that's not the same mm. as what's at home. What a stupid thing to say, mm. so now I'm going to have it out. And you were expelled twice. What was that? Well, and I was expelled once when I was asked to leave the second time. <laughs> 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 what for? Oh, that was terrible. That was really bad, actually. They, they, well, they put me on report in the grammar school. They put me on report. They made me do the third year twice. That's meant to be the ultimate humiliation. You know, that will sort you out. All, all, all it does, it, it makes you feel like the odd one out. And it makes you feel like you're being picked on a little bit. Mm. Because you don't understand why these problems are happening. You know, your things that, like the chair thing, the things that you're doing, and that was one of hundreds. The things that you're doing to you make perfect sense. And, and seem quite reasonable because you have this way of seeing the world. And when it's not seen that way, you, you don't understand their problem and you react quite badly to their reaction to what this very normal thing that you think you've, you've just done. So you feel picked on mm. and you feel victimized. And, and so you, you start to feel like this angry little person. And so, and then you play up on it and then you become that person and you and it just gets worse and mm -hmm. worse and worse so it all snowballs and it's it's an unsavable thing i think you mm. know when you're young because you've got no breaks mm. you don't understand how what's happening and what's going wrong and you always start to sort of revel in it being this person because now you're standing out and for some reason that seems important even though it's in the wrong way you, you know you you lose all respect for all of it and you just become this just troublesome kid. So I totally understand why they eventually got rid of me. But before that, they, they, they sent me to a, a local psychiatrist to try to figure out what was going on and why I was so troubled. He, he had this revolting habit of blowing snot into a tissue and jumping it in a bin right in front of me. Mm. That's not a good thing. No. So I didn't like him. No. He seemed dirty to me. And, yeah. and he eventually said, after a few sessions, that there's nothing I can do for you. I'm going to refer you to this St. Thomas's Hospital in London, uh -huh. their psychiatry unit, child psychiatry unit. So that's where we went there. And I met a lady there who's who subsequently become quite famous, apparently, for diagnosing children with illnesses that would normally be diagnosed further along mm -hmm. and for medication. She would medicate children, which was frowned upon, apparently, at the time. Uh, anyway, so I went to see her, and that's where Asperger's was, was first okay. mentioned. The, the thing is, as far as I was concerned, there was absolutely nothing wrong with me. It was the world. The world was wrong. I was the only person in it that made sense to me. The way everybody reacted was weird. You know, I, I didn't understand them at, them at all. And I was the only one that seemed to me to, to be level, you know. 
So I thought it was all a nonsense just going to see. I just, it's just great we're getting off school. I didn't have to go to school for an afternoon or a day when I went to London. And, and unfortunately, that's the way I saw it. So I didn't really pay much attention. I'm also in a thing, all children born between the 3rd and 9th of March in 1958 are part of a survey that's followed us throughout our whole lives. So I was used to having loads and loads of extra exams and tests and medicals and all sorts of things. I was doing it all the time as part of this survey. The Child Development Survey, I think they've done many more since. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, to me it was just endless tests and endless IQ tests and endless medicals and things like that. It was just constant. And so when I went to this psychiatrist, and there was sort of more of the same, really. I just thought, didn't think anything of it. Mm. And so I'm, I really regret that I didn't take that much interest in what was being said at the time. But I do remember the Asperger's thing. I do remember her saying that, I'm just thinking, didn't, didn't mean anything. Mm. You know, so, well, I've got this Asperger's thing. And I don't remember her saying that I had it or that it was suspected. I do remember my mum seeming to be very unhappy about that. And she, she seemed to see it, as I remember, as a slight on, on parenting, as if it was something that she had done wrong, which it obviously isn't. Mm. But she seemed to take it that way. So I don't think she understood it. I was already on the Nardil and the Valium at that point for about a year. As, as, far, as far as I remember, there was no follow-up checks on that but there may have been but I just wasn't aware of them I was on so that for a year so you were on Valium for a year yeah and, what and, effect did that and have Nardil, which is even worse yeah what effect did that have on you it calmed me down just okay. made me calm you're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and me Alice Thompson there'll be more from us just after this 
wood covering on it, drilled lots of holes in it and put dials in it and switches. And that panel allowed me to be anything. I could be a pilot, I could be an astronaut, I could be <laughs> on a ship, I could do what I wanted. Those little things, mm -hmm. I could sit there hours after hours after hours, just imagining I'm going somewhere and traveling or controlling this big machine or whatever. And so you wanted to be a pilot, didn't you? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I did for a long time. That was my big fascination. But music was always there. Mm. You know, it was always around and it was always a close second. Uh, and I did listen to music, mm. but the emphasis shifted. It sort of just just turned slightly. And, and at some point, we had this careers talk at school where the teacher said, and for all of those people that have dreams of becoming a pilot, only one in a thousand ever get to be a pilot, which is rubbish. Yeah. You know, what an un uninspiring thing yeah. for a careers teacher to say. And there's about a thousand people in the school. And I looked around and I thought, well, I'm not the smartest one here. <laughs> so um, that's out. So you better become a pop star instead. I'll be a pop star instead. <laughs> yeah, that seemed more down to luck and, and perseverance right. than, than sort of anything else. Um, yeah, it was that, it was that talk that, that made me switch from, from one silly dream to another, really. And you, you were then in a band at school and there was one time where you turned up and someone else had stolen your singing slot. Yes, there was a band that made of, this is after I'd left school, so there was a band of, okay. I was in other bands before that, but mm. just doing cover versions, weddings, that sort of thing, just playing other people's songs just to get experience when I was about 16, 17. And then that finished and I started a band with my school friends, well, some of them, uh, we did three gigs, each one with a different name because nobody could, decided what to call it. So I was <laughs> I, even then at that very early stage, I, I was recognizing that bands as democracies are just a rubbish. <laughs> yeah. You need someone, you need someone mm. that mm. has the vision or the drive or whatever you, you, that everyone else will follow. You know, or else it just becomes this constant compromise and nothing gets done. Mm. We did three gigs under different names. And then it was, we had a rehearsal planned in, in London somewhere and I turned up to rehearsal and there was somebody already there singing yeah. and I was a singer and that's when I realised I wasn't in it anymore so th there was a but bit of a discussion you know, you said, you know what's you know why is this and what's going on mm. and he said well I can't remember word for word at all now but essentially it was the fact that I wrote all the songs and he said but you don't write songs <laughs> you know none of you write songs you always go out to the pub every night and you're always getting drunk and you're trying to get off with girls and doing all those things and I said that's fine but you don't write songs. Mm. So I said, when you're out doing all the things you're doing, I'm at home and I'm writing the songs and mm. that's the songs that we're doing. I, don't, I wasn't trying to dominate the thing, just mm. that nobody else did it. Someone, someone had to. But I think it's more than that. I don't think they liked me being at the front because I was a singer. I don't know what it was. I never, I never did find out mm. really what, what, it, what it was. Mm. And did you have any formal music lessons at all as a child or did you actually have a guitar at home or...? A yeah, Can my my mum and dad got me a, a little acoustic guitar when I was when I was you know I'm going to say four, but it probably wasn't. But you know, as, as way back to my earliest memories, they had I had an acoustic guitar, but I never learned to play it. I, I didn't know anything about playing it. A bit later on, I had a cousin Richard, who had a guitar, electric guitar, and he taught me a few chords. So that, that and that's the only lessons I ever had. Richard taught me three or four chords and I was able to strum along with him. Some some of it he he liked like the Beatles and that sort of music. And he got he's a bit hippie as you got into like Can and Tago Mag and all that weird progressive stuff. Um but he he uh he sort of really enthused me 
in, into learning to play the guitar as much as I ever did. And then I, obviously all I want now, I just want an electric guitar because that's the thing. My mum and dad got me this weird one. It had this strange plug that you plugged it in with. I'd never seen a, anything like it. It's not a jack plug like all guitars have and everything has. Mm. It wasn't, it was, it was this weird, it looked like a skyscraper on its side. It was this weird thing. And I had one cable and that's the only cable I ever found that, that worked this <laughs> guitar. But the thing about that that was weird was I, I wasn't that bothered about playing it. You know, I, I would put it on a stand. I played it sometimes. I put it on a stand and plug it into these little effects pedals, and I'd hit the guitar, and it would do a, and then I'd mess with the pedals, so it, it made all these weird noises. So you're experimenting so I, with the machine even then. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I, you know, I just wasn't interested that interested in mm. learning how to play an instrument. Mm. I just wanted to make noises that I thought were cool and interesting. And you changed your name uh, to Gary Newman. Yeah, not officially, just, to, just when I'm working. <laughs> and how, what, how did that come about? Did your parents mind that you changed your name? Or did they never they said they you? did, because I never changed it for real. And you know, I still mm. wear, you know, I still, all, you know, if I get a bill, it's sent to Gary Webb. You yeah. know, I'm, I'm still Gary Webb. I think even when I sign songwriting um, registration forms, I still sign as Gary Webb. Contracts are Newman, but. Uh, I, I just didn't think Gary Webb was a very good stage name. <laughs> as, as a kid, you know, you think about these things, don't you? And uh, I thought I should have something that was a little bit more, I don't know, that sounded more like a pop star to a, to a teenager. So how did you find it? Yellow Pages. What was Newman? Commercial Yellow Pages. It was Neumann. Oh, no. Yeah, I was, got that really late. I mean, I had a record deal and I still hadn't got my name sorted out. Then the first single, I'm, I'm, I'm called Valerian or something like that. <laughs> So you're flicking through the yellow pages looking for yeah, a name. Yeah, well, I, I tried a normal phone book, but because it's alphabetical, you get a little bit blinded mm. to what you're seeing. Mm. You stop seeing the words. It just becomes C's and loads of D's. and <laughs> you, you, you stop seeing. Uh, the, thing, the good thing about yellow pages is you know, because it's in categories, it, it's leaping around all over the place. And so things leap out at you. You notice things. And it was a company called, it was the Els Court Yellow Pages, and it was a company called Neumann Kitchen Appliances, <laughs> N-E-U-M-A-N-N. And this was um, when lots of people were kind of working in Germany. Mm. And I didn't want a German name. I'm, I'm British, you know. So I took the E out and I took the extra N out. And that's how it ended up being Neumann spelt the way. It's just a shortened version of the, the German spelling of Neumann. And did you find that when you started getting fans that it was quite oppressive because you've got Asperger's? Or did you actually find they really encouraged you? How... How was it at the beginning? Uh, it's, it's hard to remember for sure because I didn't really have any until it was massive. You know, it, it was just a trickle, mm. you know, a handful of people. You know, I, I used to write back to everyone that wrote to me because there were so few people. You know, honest to God, four or five, you know, nothing at all. And then our friend Electric happened and, and then there were millions. Mm. And so it was so sudden, mm. you, you know, the switch from one thing to another that I, I went from dreaming about how good it might be to to realising that it isn't good at all. Mm. You know, this is weird and it's frightening and it, and it's... I've often likened it to, to um, grabbing onto the side of a train. You know, you you stand on the, on the platform waiting for success to come along. You can hop onto the carriage and enjoy it, this lovely journey that you're going to go on. It wasn't like that at all. It was like an express train came through and you saw, and it had opportunity written on the front of it. You could barely see. 
and you just put out your hand and grabbed it and you're suddenly whisked away at this lightning speed and you're hanging on just for as long as you possibly can and you're looking in and you're seeing this other world but you're not really a part of it you're on the outside of it and you're getting battered and bruised and damaged and, and you never feel this if you're part of it you never find a way in you're always on the outside and at some point you lose your grip you just run out of strength and you fall off and you find yourself dusty and broken and damaged in the middle of nowhere you don't really know who you are you don't know where you are and the train disappears and that success disappearing and now it's all stopped and now you have to find where you are and who you are and you have to find your way back to the tracks again tracks have vanished you know this this clear clear idea where you thought you were going and this ambition and what it what it should mean and where it should take you none of that happened and so you find yourself in this peculiar position and you wander and you wander the wrong way for a while and if you're lucky and I was lucky m many years later you find your way back to the tracks and now you just start walking along them but it's your pace and you know where you're going again but it's at your pace and it's more controlled and you know what you're doing and and in a strange way you keep your ears open for another train coming because this time you're just going to step out of the way mm. and let it go because that's madness all of that and it must have been particularly hard when you were on the spectrum because you're performing it's a very kind of social public thing being famous well it's not How though, you see it's, it's not because you're totally separate Okay. You're on a stage looking out at people that you can barely see. No matter how big the places are, you can't really see much. I don't look at the front because okay. you catch people's eyes and that freaks me out. I don't like that. So I just look at the back, look, look about 10 rows back, even at the back wall. And I'm just looking out. Or look, you, you do this thing where you look at the end of the mic. And it looks like your eyes are open, but you're not really seeing anything. I probably look cross-eyed in most of my photos because I'm just looking at the microphone. I used to get terrible stage fright when I was doing little pubs and clubs. Terrible. I, mean, I could barely speak for days before. And my dad said to me, at the last gig I ever did as a little punk rocker, actually, I was in a punk band, before it all got massive a year or two later, my dad was seeing me sort of suffering with the, with the stage fright. And he said to me, if you don't find a way of dealing with this, he said, this is a terrible career choice for you. But he's right. Mm. as he always was you know I need to find a way of dealing with this and that's where the idea of images came from you create a persona that you you hide within or behind you create images you become another character you turn that on when you need it mm. and then you very quickly turn it back off again because that's not the way you want to be you know when, when I'm on stage maybe less so now because I'm I've, I don't really need characters anymore because I'm so used to it. Mm -hmm. But certainly when I was beginning, the character on stage was quite cocky and quite cold. That's the persona mm -hmm. that I thought this would be the one that I can and use. Dramatic, and it was a character from a story dramatic, I was writing. I was, I was writing all these short stories and mm -hmm. so I just took a character from that, became that person. But it was really important that you turned it on when it started. Mm -hmm. And as you walked off the stage, you just turned it back off again. You went back to being grounded and normal and Friendly and, and then was it very difficult when you then met the fans, say you were out shopping or you're on the street or somewhere, and which 
persona you were? Because that must be quite hard because the fans are expecting one thing, but you probably want to have yeah, time when you've totally yeah. well, switched off. I didn't off. go out much. So I, I didn't have too many opportunities to meet them, but I did. And is that it because you were worried about meeting them? I just didn't like being around people, I, I, especially lots of people. You know, I became really quite reclusive. Stayed at home most of the time. Would go out, but to very few places with very limited people. Do you know the other thing that my dad said to me that was hugely important was I was very dreamy. I was always dreaming about wanting to be famous and wanting to be in a band and have this musical career. And my dad said to me at one point, my dad had always been really supportive. My mum, you know, oh, that'd be fantastic, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then I, you know, I make a mess of school and it's still with, still supporting, still being lovely about it. My dad said to me at one point, he suddenly turned, he wasn't supportive, and he said, you're always just talking about it. All you do is talk about it. So when you're going to do something, when you're actually going to get off your ass and do something about making this dream of yours happen, he said, because if you don't, you're going to be sitting in my front room for forever <laughs> talking about what you're going to be. Mm. He said, I'm getting fed up with you and you talk about it. You do something. And I felt, felt like I was massively betrayed at that moment. He, oh, Dad! <laughs> you know? um, and then about 10 seconds later, I thought, he's right, you know, mm. I need to do something about it. And that's when I started going out and trying to join bands to start bands. And that's, that's how that thing happened. I think I'd have been dreaming forever yeah. if my dad hadn't have, mm. you know, shaken me into actually doing something about it. I, I'm very, very dreamy. Sometimes you just need that, that kick, mm. you know, mm. kick up the bum to, mm. to make you get on with it. And then you're obsessed about that. Mm. You know, th that's where the Asperger's thing is so brilliant because you, you know, people talk about being obsessive as if it's a bad thing. But it's not. It's a really good thing. You know, it, it it drives you, doesn't it? You know, when I became a pilot, I became an air display pilot. You know, low-level aerobatics, formation flying, all that sort of flying old World War II aeroplanes. It's really dangerous. You know, I was in a team of six people when it started. Four of them were killed in different crashes. The man that taught me aerobatics was killed. You know, they were dropping like flies every, every year and so you have to be obsessed you have to know everything you possibly can uh, about this thing that you're doing that will kill you if you don't know everything you can be super careful you know, your, your checks have to be meticulous you know, don't mm. take anything for granted well you apply that level of, of obsession to other things as well and it, it's just really really useful so what's the advantage in music does your different brain make you more creative as well I, you see the world differently that's mm. for sure well no i think maybe you don't see it differently as you react to it differently mm. there are things that bother you in ways that don't seem to bother other people it it, it i do struggle to explain this side of it i i have to say because i i i still don't feel significantly different but I know I am, and I know a lot of that is tied in with the way I react to emotional things, obsession. My, my, my wife's dad died recently, and it's been coming for a while. He's very, very old. And my wife has, has openly said, I'm really worried about us when my dad dies because of how you're going to be, because you're not good with that sort of thing. She said, I'm going to really, really need you to this terrible thing's going to happen and I'm going to really, really need someone to just wrap me up and 
help me through it. And she said, and you're terrible mm. at that mm. sort of thing. Um, and I've been dreading it because I know I'm rubbish. I, I do. I, you know, you know the, the way I, I, I think many Asperger's people deal with these things, if someone's sad, they need to be cheered up. So you tell them a joke, couldn't do a, mm. a more inappropriate mm. thing, mm. you know, because you just don't get it. You don't get it. And so, you know, you have to say, do you want me to talk about this? Or do you want genuine advice or do you want a cuddle? Mm. What do you mm. want? Because I don't know. Mm. You just tell me, mm. um, which sort of spoils the moment a little bit, you know, but you have to because I, I don't get it. And can you tell us a bit about how you met Gemma, your wife? Because it sounds like when you met her, everything changed really, didn't it, once yeah. you started going out with her? Yeah, certainly did. Well, she'd been a fan forever, you know, so I'd seen her around. She'd always go to gigs, she'd always be at the front. I didn't know her, you know, I, I got to know what her name was because I'd signed something. But she never did the groupy thing, she never hung around, never went back to the hotels. Come, sort of see you at the end of the gig as you're getting on back onto the bus, sign a, sign a thing and off she would go. But I noticed that strangely enough, you notice the ones that don't do all the, the stuff. And I thought that was nice. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't know her at all. Um, she always used to have amazing hair and these brilliant clothes. She looked great. But I, I didn't think anything of it. And then I noticed on one particular tour that she hadn't been around. Because she used to go to loads of shows. You'd see her all through the gigs. But this is a point when the career was doing really badly. So I was losing fans with the thousands. You know, so it wasn't uncommon to see people that had been there for a long time just stop coming because they didn't like what I was doing. So I was used to that. I just assumed that had happened. And then uh, at some point in the tour, she did turn up. And she came to get her thing signed, as she often did. And so I, I spoke to her for the first time and I said, you know, where have you been? <laughs> I haven't seen much of you on this tour and you're normally at all the gigs. And she said that her mum was dying, her mum was in hospital, she had uh, brain cancer. And it was very sad, and, and she'd come this, this night because her dad said she needed to get away because it was so horrible uh, back at home. And, and we started having a conversation, and, and it lasted for like a couple of hours. Hmm. And, she, and she was amazing. Uh, you know, she was, even with all this tragedy going on, she was, there was this incredible person underneath all this that was, that was coming out, and I, and I thought she was absolutely brilliant. Um, but it didn't. No, nothing happened, and she went back eventually, and and um, and that was the end of that, you, you know. And then, quite some time later, quite many many months later, I, I somebody says to me that her mum had died, and and so I thought, and I I had this long this this journey to I was going to go up to to Shropshire to do a radio thing. So I thought, I don't know, I'll ring her up and see if she wants to come with me to, to Shropshire. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is before data protection, yes. I think. So I went through with a fan club file, got a phone number yeah. and um, I rang her up. <laughs> what did she say when she heard your voice? Oh, she, did, she, she thought it was somebody playing a cruel joke. She actually thought, my mum has just died and somebody ringing up pretending to be Gary Newman. How nasty is that? Yeah. She asked me a few questions at what my favourite colour was and things like that. And she'd got the answers from newspapers, which were wrong. <laughs> you know, what's your favourite colour? I said black, which it was at the time. And she went, no, it's not. <laughs> put, put the phone down. So I had to ring her back. I rang her back. I said, no, no, it really is. And so we did this question and answer thing. And, and eventually she believed it, mostly. Um, 
So I told her, and I said, you know, I've got to do this Shropshire trip, blah, blah, blah. And, and anyway, so she, she said, all right, she'll come along with me on that. She turned up with no makeup on. She said she wanted me to see her at her worst. Mm. Um, so that if it was going to, you know, if I was going to be shocked and horrified at some point, mm. better to do it at the beginning so it doesn't doesn't go anywhere. Yes. <laughs> um, well, I didn't think anything like that, you, you know. So then she gets me to go to Shropshire and she she spills coffee all over my phone and ruins my phone, which is one of those big old brick ones. Yeah. And then we go to a little chef because <laughs> I didn't know anything about going out, you know, so my mum did just go to a little chef, so I went to a little chef and I spilt my peas all over her and, and it was all a bit of a disaster, but it was lovely. And in the course of, and every every story I tried to tell her, every little anecdote that I thought would be funny or interesting, she knew it already. Okay. <laughs> she'd read all, all the interviews, that, 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 that they're all my stories, you know. So I, I, I realised, even while we were still on the way to Shropshire, that the only thing, there, I don't have anything I don't have anything that I can do that's impressive or funny. All I can do is just be me. And you were yourself, not your stage person. Yeah. 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 And um, at the end of this journey, I just thought she was the best thing ever. And what then did she do with your music? Because she did change it in a way. She gave you yeah. more confidence, didn't well, she? Well, career was really in trouble then. I, I, it was rubbish. and My songwriting was rubbish and uh, I was probably at the lowest point it had been. And I, I was pretty much of the opinion that my career was over. Mm. This is 1992. And so we talked about that quite a lot. She was saying to me, the things that you've been doing, you know, you've been taking you out of the albums more and more and more. And so um, the fans are not liking that. You know, you, you, you have backing singers all over it now. You don't play guitar on them anymore. You get someone else to do it. You get other keyboard players coming in. And she said, you've taken out the thing that they wanted. You've taken Gary Newman out of your records. And Maya, I would say, no, what I've done, I've made them more musical. They're better now. They're proper players on them because I can't play. And now they sound musical. That's where they should have been. And she was saying, no, that's just completely wrong. <laughs> and so we argued about that for ages. And slowly but surely, I began to understand what she was saying. Didn't necessarily agree with it, but I understood what she was saying. And she was right. I, I had, yes, I had taken me out of everything because I saw me as the weak link in the records, my singing, my playing that was the weak point of the records. And that's why they were getting criticised and that's why they were selling badly and getting worse and worse and worse. And eventually, I, I understood what she she was saying to to, to such a degree that I, I changed. Mm. Then the next album I made was called Sacrifice and I did everything myself. I wrote everything, I played everything, I produced, I even engineered that one myself. Mm. You know, built my own little studio at home and got all that together because we had no money then. £250,000 in debt, I think. I don't know what it would be now, but yeah. I mean, it was millions now mm. probably and with no sign of it getting better i'd lost my record contract i had no record contract mm. no signs i'd ever get another one you know it was finished mm. and so she encouraged me to go back to doing it as a hobby but you once said that you don't write happy songs do you think you have to be miserable to no, write no, no. well or... i used to yeah. i used to think that being miserable was an absolute requirement mm. um but that's absolutely not true at, at okay. all I, i'm really happy mm. you know i'm i'm I love my life. And you've got your kids now playing too, haven't they? They've, they've come on some of the tours. Yes, Ra Raven. Raven has just made her first album. We're, we're just sorting out a contract for that now with a record label. Hersha was actually singing before Raven was. Um, she was massively into music and sang on my second 
the last mm. album, uh, and then toured with me and was doing that that song she sang on. She was in the video for it, uh, but then COVID happened and she kind of just got crushed by that, and she stopped writing. She stopped singing. She would she would be singing all day long, all around the house, and she's she's amazing, fantastic singer, and it was beautiful. And she would always be you'd hear her drifting in from all over the place, and it all stopped. It all stopped, and she's only now just beginning to. Mm. get back into it again. I think perhaps Raven's thing. Raven, in, in, in when COVID happened, went the other way. She had always want, talked about wanting to do music but not really done anything. COVID happened, she suddenly turned into this songwriting machine. She churned out about 60, 70 songs or more. All good, unbelievably good. You know, but she absolutely gifted for it. So she's now taken that and she's on her, on her way. So do you want them to be successful and famous or do you worry about them being squashed by the train? But the difference is that I'm here. I never had a me. You know, Raven's got someone that's done it all his life, mm. that's seen every side of it, you know, from good and bad, and, and in all sorts of ways, good and bad. So I, I'm there to guide her if she wants it. And she may not. She certainly didn't this morning. <laughs> but generally, she seems to be quite prepared to, to, to listen. But she, I mean, she's very strong will. She's got her own mind, and, and that will drive her onwards. But you know, if you, if you have someone in your camp that's been through most of the things that, you're, that are coming your way, you know, that must help, I think. And what do you wish you'd known when you were sort of a teenager, you were being expelled from school, you were, you know, being shunned by the other pupils, the teachers were being really unfair and critical. What do you wish you'd known then that you know now? I don't know that I would want to change anything. Everything that happens to you shapes what you become, good, good and bad. Mostly bad, actually. I think most of our shaping happens from bad experiences, not from good ones. Good ones we tend to just absorb and run with. Bad ones stop, make you stop and think, and you know, that must not happen again. How, how, you know, it, 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 the character building stuff is the negative stuff mostly, I think. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. There's loads and loads of things in my past that are unpleasant. My, my family, not my family, is amazing, but many of the things around that. Not at all. And I've had to really learn what to avoid and what's good and what's what's not, not so good. You know, you know, the career mostly has struggled. You know, the first year or two was pretty good. Then it was just a nightmare for about the next 20 years. And then it sort of started to pick up a little bit, but not enormously. And it's taken me from 92 to now, really, to get back to some kind of level of... of you know, where you can be proud of where you're at or, you know, acceptable. But for a long, long time. I mean, my, I had an album get into the top 20 in 2013 or 14. I think that was the first time I'd had in the chart for about 30 years. So most of my career has been out of the chart, not not successful. I've got this reputation of being sort of innovative and influential in the rest of it, which is fantastic. And that's kept me going. And other people saying nice things about me has kept me going when, the, when there were no fans, when there was nobody buying, buying a record. So you know, I'm very lucky to, to have had this, this later, latest period, which is much, much more encouraging. And to be in this position now with Raven coming along and Persia, hopefully, in a way, because Persia will go this way, I think, because it, it gives me some sort of standing. You know, I can, I can say, I can give an opinion and it's kind of accepted 
where I think if I was a complete fail, it has been, and my time was 40 years ago, I don't think they'd listen. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky, but I've really, really worked to have this longevity. You know, I've, I've been running and scrabbling every, every day to even be where I am now, and I'm a long way from where I was, but you, do you know what I mean? So I, I feel proud of the longevity because I think I earned it. listening to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities, with me, Rachel Sylvester, and me, Alice Thompson, and our guest on this episode, Gary Newman. The series producer is Anya Pierce, and the editor was Callum McRae. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts.